Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. If you've been listening to our show for a while, you know that our fundamental goal is to introduce you to guests whose work adds new, important, and useful insights into leadership effectiveness with the spin that their ideas also challenge traditional leadership thinking and practices and remind us that qualities like empathy and compassion, kindness, and appreciation really matter if your objective is to attract and retain talented and accomplished people and few people are more talented at directly challenging the status quo than my guest today. Time Magazine named Martin Lindstrom one of the world's 100 most influential people, and Thinkers 50 has named him one of the world's top 20 business thinkers. He's the author of seven New York Times bestselling books, including his newest, which we're going to be discussing today. Just a few seconds into this episode, you're going to have a pretty good understanding of why Martin is so successful and influential, with one big reason, that he's uncommonly oriented to seeing the world from the inside out, not the other way around. And Martin runs the world's leading brand and culture transformation company and has collected example after example of organizations, leaders really, making business decisions that fundamentally lack common sense ones that inherently end up damaging the employee experience, the customer experience, or both. And Martin makes the rather insightful conclusion that a lack of common sense in leadership is always connected to a lack of empathy for other people and a concern for how one's choices will impact other people's feelings, experiences, and lives. We schedule Zoom calls for exactly 60 minutes, which affords people no breaks in between meetings. And we schedule 60-minute meetings even when we know they won't last that long or shouldn't and deprive people of time to be creative around the projects they have waiting for them once all their meetings are over. And who of us isn't annoyed by invitations to meetings that don't affect us or by emails that CC us for no important reason? These are just a few examples of experiences all of us have every day and are calling out for intervention, but most of us suffer through them rather than courageously confront them. Martin's new book is appropriately called The Ministry of Common Sense, How to Eliminate Bureaucratic Red Tape, Bad Excuses, and Corporate BS. And having just recorded the episode before preparing this introduction, I'll just say, please expect to be inspired. Let's get to it. And welcome to the podcast, Martin. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm looking forward to this. And as we were talking a little bit before we started recording, I've read a couple of your books now, but The Ministry of Common Sense is the one that we're going to talk about today. And when I was reading it, I think that my greatest strength is that I'm intuitive and I can feel into people. And the sense that I got in reading your book is that You have your eyes, your ears, even your heart wide open in like every personal and professional interaction you have. And you seem to have managed to cultivate this uncanny ability to notice all the small things that too often derail human success. And I kept asking myself, like, how did you become this guy? Like, how did you become this expert with this particular and unique expertise? So how about a synopsis of how you became you? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, if we have about two hours for that oh, answer, I know, I know. then let's set it aside. But you know what? My story began when I was a, a child and my mom actually had a, a small cosmetic chain and she had clinics where she would give beauty treatments to all her 
her customers. And I remember I would be probably not more than seven years of age or six years of age, and I'd be lying under the reception desk doing my homework and listening in while my mom would be sitting above me and treating all her customers coming in and out. And then I was listening to the conversation. And at one point I said to my mom, do you know what? I think we should do a survey. And she looked at me and she said, why not? So we did a survey where I asked all the customers about how they felt, if they were happy or not happy, and if they would recommend this to another person. And I realized what people said on the questionnaire and what they told me in person was very different. You know, I would walk around and talk to the customers and they'll be very different. And that's the first time I really realized that there's a big difference between what people say and how they feel and what they communicate indirectly. And that really continued to when I was 12 years of age, where I was a huge fan of Lego. And I built up a Legoland in the backyard of my mom and dad's garden. And I was really proud. It took me a year to develop. And I opened the doors to this Legoland and only two people showed up, my mom and my dad, which really was the lowest point of my career, I guess. As so, a 12-year-old. As a 12-year-old. <laughs> so I went down to the local advertising agency and I, I don't know why and how I did it, but I persuaded them to put an ad in the paper. And two days later, I had 131 visitors coming to my Legoland. There was just one problem. Visitor number 130 and visitor number 131 were the lawyers from Lego suing me. Oh. They said it was their brand. And I said, no, it can't be your brand. I bought the boxes myself. So, and this is a true story. This is crazy now what I'm telling you. So the owner of Lego heard about the story. Now, Lego is Danish. This is in Denmark. I'm Danish. So he jumped into his car and he drew to my hometown and he literally knocked on the main door of my parents' house. It's a little bit like Willow Wonka, the chocolate factory scenario here. And he literally said, I heard about the story. And he basically invited me to become an employee of Lego. So I was the youngest kid to get a job at Lego at the age of, of 12. And later on, I actually, many years later, I asked the guys which took that decision, why did you do that? Hoping they would say, you know what, we saw a child genius. This is amazing. Oh, no, that was not what they said. They said, because we wanted to get closer to the customer. We wanted to understand and feel the world through the children's eyes. And we thought by employing you, that would be a way to do that. And that really stuck with me for the rest of my life, uh, sounding like I'm dead now, but at least for the <laughs> following 30 years. Because when I started up my own advertising agency when I was 13, I got Lego as a client. I sold the agency to BBDO when I was 18. And through this whole journey, whenever I gave advice or worked with companies later on worldwide, I always had the customer's point of view back in my head. And that became such a fine-tuned skill because, as Malcolm Gladwell says, the 10,000-hour rule, that really, when you've done something for 10,000 hours, you fine-tuned and perfected a skill. Well, I probably have done it for 30,000 hours by now. And so one tends to say that an instinct is an accumulation of experience through many years. I think I have enough experience to be able to accumulate enough instinct so I can see and pick up data and what I call small data in all sorts of contexts and build a conclusion on it where a lot of people probably today are afraid of building conclusions, not trusting their instinct because we've become so addicted on relying on technology and spreadsheets and data, whereas we increasingly do not trust our instincts anymore. And that's really what I 
I'm focused on all the time. And I think that's the reason why I love it and I'm using it every minute of my life. Wow. Well, I'm really glad I asked that story. And now I have a couple more for you on this. So what do you think it was like that inspired you at seven years old to say, okay, it's time to do some polling. We're going to start asking our customers about the experience of my mom's salon. And, you know, we're going to remedy any complaints. This is not seven-year-old normal behavior. So what was going on there? It almost feels like you were put on the earth to do this kind of work. <laughs> do you know what? I've never been asked that question. So thank you for that question. And I don't think I can give you a clever answer. I think perhaps I can give you one answer. Actually, I think I may have the answer to it. So I'll tell you another story. When I was six years of age, I think or six and a half, I was sitting in the kitchen with my, my parents and my dad was miserable. He was very depressed at work. He was the boss of some mid-sized company. And I remember I said to my dad when he looked at me and asked me for my advice, I said to him, quit the work. It's easy to say as a six and a half year old kid, I think, but he did it. And he then said, so what should I do? And I said, let's sail around the world. I said to him, that would be fun. You know, my mom and dad and I were sailing quite a lot back then. So um, my mom and dad back then actually did that. And my dad quit his job. My mom had a person taking over her company. And we jumped on a boat and for nearly two years until one and a half years or something, just before I came back and did that second round of story I told you about, we sailed around the world. But it was based on one condition. And the condition was that I had to earn my own money and pay for my own food. And I know today every parent will say, but that's horrible parents. But it's probably the best ever. Because what happened was that I actually back then bought a lot of Lego boxes and I built a lot of Lego men. And I built five or 10 Lego men per country I would sell to. And then I put a sort of a necklace around it and sold them as kind of a jewelry where the flag was displayed as the Lego man of that country went to. So I had about 200 Lego men with me. And this is a true story. I actually went to sell through Sienne into Paris with our boat. And we were lying down the Latin Quarter, which is the book area where you're selling old antique books. Mm-hmm. And I was desperate because I had to get food on the table and that was the promise. My dad has resigned. My parents have resigned because of me. That was a kind of a responsibility. So I um, went up to the Latin Quarter and I, I was thinking, my God, there's a lot of people coming by here. How do I get hold of them? So I stood at a nearby corner and I started to observe people as they walked by. And at 12 o'clock, something extraordinary happened. What happened was that people continue walking, but everyone running those stores closed down the stores. But you still had all these tourists coming from around the world, not knowing that they had to go on a French lunch break for two and a half hours type of thing, right? So I thought, this is really interesting. So I went up to one of these guys just before I closed the store day two, and I said, hey, can I keep your store open? He said, okay, I'll sell all your stuff while you're away, and then I'll sell my Lego man sets as well. And this guy... No, not speaking English and me not speaking English either. Kind of, I think he felt so sorry for me somehow. And for some reason he trusted me. So he said, yes. So I opened my own little store in his high traffic store, kind of in the high street in Paris. And I was standing there for a week selling my Lego man. And I sold out every single one of my 200 Lego men, each with local flags for all these local nationalities. And I literally earned money for a whole year. And... That taught me 
the ability to see and observe to merge into cultures. And whenever we came to a new country, I would go out and do a business on ground and merge myself into the local cultures and see the world from their point of view. So frankly speaking, coming back to my answer to your question, where did I learn the skill from? I think I, like any other kids, were forced into a new reality or some kids may not be, but I certainly was, through the carrot of you had to earn the money. And I think that actually taught me a skill set which I would never have learned had my parents not teased me with the fact of not giving me food on the table unless I had to earn my own money. It, did it never happen? Of course it didn't. But it put me on the spot and created a mutual responsibility and certainly taught me not to take things for granted. I mean, that's just an incredible story. But you have like this... You used the word teased at the end, which clarifies that this wasn't some Dickensian, you know, exercise where you're never going to eat unless you make money. But you took it very seriously. And you took it, like, I think with a sense of optimism that, yeah, I can do that. And so you're going in and talking to purveyors in a city in a country where you don't even speak their language and you're persuading somebody is that how old were you 12 well back then i was when we sell around the world i was a little bit before seven or six and a half i mean who does this at six and a half years old this is extraordinary behavior what do you know about yourself that would make you want to do something in other words what's in your heart i i don't think there's anything special to be honest i think what happened was that the circumstances forced me on another track to see the world from a different point of view. I also do think that through that, it's almost like metaphorically speaking, if you imagine you go to a, a cross and you have three different train tracks you can choose, I was kind of forced to go to the one on the right. And as I was forced to do that, there was a whole new set of reality happening. I tend to have a philosophy that you get only three opportunities in your life. And if you grab then you'll get another three. And that's really what I think happened back then. I got another three opportunities. And one of the opportunities I got was the reward of seeing opportunities and not just seeing them, but also grabbing them. I think a lot of kids today may not necessarily see and grab the opportunities. And if they do that, they do it perhaps within a set framework. My framework was not a set online platform or you do this online or Instagram or you become a celebrity online format. It was much wider. It was called the world. It was yeah. called life, <laughs> right? right? So mm -hmm. it was like death or life like type of format. So I think as I was pushed in there, it's almost like one tends to say that if you have a knee which is broken, it's slowly repaired over time and healed, that if it's not 100% healed, it will create a damage throughout the spine and you suddenly will compensate for it by using your other knee more. Your body will not know, but your whole spine will go out of balance. Now, I'm not saying I went out of balance, but I'm saying I was compensating for the fact that I did not have an income and I had to survive. And because of that, I was fine-tuning other skills I necessarily wouldn't optimize, which brings me back to multiple experiences. I mean, one of them were that I decided to become blind 
in Australia for a week. And I did that by teaming up with a blind person. And then I literally said, listen, I want to follow you around for a week to understand how you live. So I blindfolded myself and I literally went around and saw the world through the ears and the mouth and the, the fingers. And what was so fascinating was after a, a week being blindfolded, I actually heard the world better. I felt the world better. I tasted the world better. And what happened was my senses had increased in in impact some two or three hundred percent. And when I finally opened my eyes, I actually saw the world better as well. And what I'm saying to you using this metaphor is that when you are forced to survive as a six and a half year old kid, metaphorically speaking against here, right? Then what happens is that you have to compensate for it. And that compensation actually makes you stronger. And I think time after time, you've seen that Helen Keller is a good example of that with a sense of touch. That compensation actually can become your strength over time. And I think that probably is what happens. Unknowing for my parents, or perhaps they knew it, I'm not sure, but certainly unknowing for me. You weren't driven by fear in doing this, right? I mean, in other words, your parents did sort no, of say that. No, hey, not really. Okay, I good. think I was more driven by opportunity. Yeah. By opportunity. Yeah, I think so. I don't think fear drew me. I don't think you have a fear as a kid unless it becomes really nasty stuff uh, going on. When you look into the brains of children, we've done a lot of studies on fear, which is activated in what's called the amygdala uh, in our brains, Mm -hmm. which is a fear center. Kids don't have a fear spot. They don't sense anxiety at all before they start to be 20, 25 years of age. So something developing over the years. So I don't think fear is in the same way as you as a parent is is interpreting it. I think that's the strength of being a child, that you're not afraid necessarily of running out of money. What the heck, then we do something else, right? Of course, there's a certain aspect where children feel a fear, but that's not the type of fear you and I are thinking about. That's maybe when it's more severe. But in this case, I don't think I ever saw it. I saw it as an amazing challenge to become the adults in a split second, if it makes sense. I mean, yeah, of course it does. But you're a remarkably curious person, which has paid your exercise of if you seize three opportunities, you're going to get three more. Obviously, I think that has probably been logarithmic for you, right? Because you seem to seize everything. I want to ask you another question about something you said a few moments ago about your experience of sort of tapping into intuition. You called it instinct. And you said that instinct is, I think the word you use was the sum of your accumulated experiences that informs you. And I'm wondering if, because I don't necessarily believe that's all of instinct. I think that that's one form of instinct. And I'm wondering if you think that there's an internal knowing that you have beyond what you've been able to cultivate through your own direct experience. I do think so. I think the best way of illustrating that probably comes down to a study done in Norway, in Europe, with people which had been part of the concentration camps in Second World War. The study was conducted among Jewish people and second generations which had, with the first generation, has been into the concentration camp. And of course, because of that, had not had a lot of sleep, sleep preparation. They've had not no food or very little food. 
And as they left the camps and got children, the study started to understand how we actually can transport behavioral changes through generations. And one of the most surprising observations made through this study showed that the next generation actually was sleeping less and they were eating less. And in fact, it was coded into the DNA. Mm. So I do think the reason why we as human beings have become what we are is also because we adopt to an environment quicker because the DNA obtains it. And then, of course, you can ask, why is that the case? And this is not scientifically proven. It's one of my pocket theories here. But one of the things I've been studying a lot when I wrote the book, The Ministry of Common Sense, was to understand empathy. And I wanted to understand empathy because I realized that empathy, of course, is all about putting yourself in the shoes of another person and feeling what that other person is feeling. And empathy has a really strong correlation with common sense. In fact, common sense, the more common sense you have, the more empathy you have, an opposite. So, of course, I had to ask myself, how come common sense is at a low point now? And realize that empathy is having currently an existential crisis. In fact, according to the University of Michigan, conducting a study among 30,000 college students over 30 years, the study basically shows that the degree of empathy has dropped some 48% over the last decade alone. It gives you a sense of how severe that issue is. And the reason why it's severe is not just because No, it's empathy. It's because if you go back in time to the human species and how we evolved, I would claim that the main reason why we have become such a strong species on planet Earth is because we have empathy. You see, we did not have empathy some 500,000 years ago. There's a, a certain area in the brain which is called the right supramarginal gurus, which is part of the cerebral cortex, which is an area which has evolved over time. And it gave us the ability to put ourselves in the footsteps of a polar bear or whatever, which were about to attack us, I presume, and through that kind of predict what it would do before it was too late. Now, what is so concerning about this whole conversation now is that empathy now is at an all-time low. The reason why we became what we are is also our own undoing at the moment. So when it comes down to the whole concept of instinct, I would claim that instinct probably have multiple tracks of inputs. And one of them is, of course, learned through the environment and one is through the DNA. But I would also claim that an instinct it's only active if we have empathy, the ability to feel what other people are feeling. And because we increasingly are, are losing that skill set, it's like a muscle which have to be trained. And if you don't train it, you simply just lose that skill set. And as we're at an all-time low, I actually think our degree of empathy is falling equally. So I think there's multiple reasons why instinct is at a low. And one of them is certainly because of empathy. Another one is probably because we don't expose ourselves from different points of views anymore, social media with a self-inflicting bubble is really self-enforcing or reinforcing our own views, but it's not exposing us from any other points of views. And that, again, is just making us weaker over time. So I think I think you're right in saying that there's multiple aspects building up intuition and, and perhaps the second track could be the track we just talked about. So... I want to talk about empathy. In fact, in your book, <laughs> you're an amusing writer, so you have a great sense of humor. And of course, I'll center this by saying that, you know, this podcast, my book, all of my work is centered around the word heart. 
And in business, we think the heart is weak and sentimental and you have to be a religious person or a spiritual nut. You know, I've heard it all. And so then you, in your book, mention this term empathy. And then you say that I think your words were that in, you know, sort of corporate business that we associate the word empathy with crying, sentimentality, and and cupcakes, cupcakes. yeah, (laughs) you know, and, you know, so my question is, like, what's it going to take for us to, like, rebel against this? Because we all must be feeling a severe deprivation. If I'm not empathetic with you and you're not empathetic with me, aren't we both experiencing a loss of something? Like, isn't there something drawing us to say this isn't working? I mean, what's this heading towards if we don't get this fixed and how do we get it fixed? Well, that's three questions in one. So let me try to, to, uh, to answer the first question, which is, will we realize? No, we won't. We won't realize it because we don't know what's broken. It's a little bit like if your car is not working, unless you're an engineer, you just know it's not working. But we don't know why. And I think we've seen that through the pandemic, that we've seen a lot of people go through depression, losing the sense of purpose. We've seen the suicide rate among young children in the U.S. gone up 300%. I know recent studies are showing that six out of 10 Young people, so between the age of 15 and 25, have had suicide thoughts over the last year alone. So why is that happening? Well, on the surface, people will say, well, people are stuck at home, right? The real reason, I think, is because we are suppressing two fundamental things. One is the sense of touch. We know today from multiple studies that the more you touch things, the more happy you are and the longer you live. An experiment done with rats shows that the first control group of rats were touched every hour by scientists. The second group of rats were not touched at all for a month. Half of them died after 15 days. When you're not touching things, you get a depression, but you don't really know why you get this depression. You just feel depressed. When you top that up with a constant spoon-fed flow of information coming through social media where you never really get bored or you never really have a moment where you can reflect or feel a sense of purpose in life, you become empty inside. And that leads to depression. And I think over that span of one and a half year, we've now seen and witnessed because of COVID-19, a lot of people have fallen victim to this. But if I was to ask them why, I don't think people could answer it. And I think that's the same when it comes to the whole empathy game. I don't think people are aware of that they're losing empathy because they're too close to the forest to see the trees. So why is it happening, you're asking? Social media for sure is one major factor. Our instant gratification generation, 280 characters on Twitter, does not allow us to tell things with nuances or to add a context to things. Everything is black and white or yes or no. A third reason which seems a bit far-fetched, but which I'm pretty convinced about is true, is that an experiment done with babies and mothers shows that the connection between babies and mothers is increasingly decreasing over the last decade because mothers are using Botox. And yes, I said Botox, because the micro-movements we have in our face is not expressed. And as we all know that 60 to 65% of our communication when we talk with other people is due to the body language. It's not due to the voice. And that's gone. It's disappearing. So we're actually losing a sense of communication. What am I saying here is two things. One is the increased use of Botox is a major factor of removing empathy in our society. But a digital version of that is sitting in front of Zoom. You can't read people's body language or, for that sake, their micro-movements. So that is, again, peeling another 
another layer of that skill set away from our vocabulary. So that's the second part to your answer. How do we repair it is your third question, right? And I think the way we repair it is to do what they've done in Denmark, to be frank. I think it has to start from the very young ages. In Denmark, we started up schools for children which are focusing on empathy. So there's empathy classes for toddlers in school where they learn empathy, they learn how to touch other people. Think about it with the Me Too movement, with sexual harassment, with all these yeah. topics. We don't dare to touch people anymore. I mean, we're screaming when we touch a person because we're afraid of being sued, which is not natural. In the end of the day, go to Italy, go to Brazil, you will see people hanging around their shoulders. We don't do that anymore. And from a rational point of view, it's clinical, it makes sense, it's safe. But from an emotional point of view, it's our undoing. So that's the reason why classes in Denmark now are teaching children from very young age to touch the right way. So you're still stimulating your senses without you know, crossing the line. I think it has to start from a very young age. I think it has to be built into the way we learn leaders to interact. I don't think a lot of leaders know how to use empathy and that skill set as a leader. But more than ever, I just spoke to a, a CEO of one of the largest pet food companies in the world. Now, we know today the pet food sales has gone up because the number of pets being sold has gone up dramatically during the COVID-19 period, mainly because people are suppressing themselves for touch, so they want to compensate for that, and they compensate for that through a pet sales or pet purchase. But I said to him, so with all your staff, they all have dogs and pets and they bring them to work, right? I said, yeah. I said, well, you can't do that now. How do you compensate for that? And he said to me, well, you have to compensate for that through being a much more active leader, to constantly be in the ears of everyone, to engage with them, to show your vulnerabilities, to engage people. So when you in the past would have to check in with people perhaps once a month, you today have to check in once a day. So a leader has to be much more present, much more in tune for the signals and the small data which are surrounding him or her. And the CEO has to be much better at adopting the organization and building the culture around the fact that it's suppressed for a sense of belonging. And you need to find new ways of building organizations which can survive in a world where everything is screen-based communication. And if you don't evolve that skill set, you will have huge problems retaining your staff. And why is that? Because empathy is gone. What about the kinds of people that we put into leadership roles? Are you advocating with your clients that they take a real hard look at the people that they're choosing for management roles to ensure that that they have this caring gene, this instinct to not just write off the need to call people and have connection with them once a week or once a day, as you're suggesting, as opposed to just saying, hey, people are getting paid, they have a job to do, they know what the expectations are, I shouldn't have to be calling these people and caring about them all the time. There are plenty of people in business in management roles that think like that. Are you suggesting to companies that if they're going to succeed going forward, they're going to have to be more caring people in their organizations? Well, let's just take a look at the reality right now. I'm sitting behind a screen. I'm working in a company. I'm interacting with my employer eight, nine, ten hours a day. I'm in back-to-back -back Zoom or Microsoft Teams meetings, one hour each, exactly one hour each. 
because if I stop short of that one hour, it looks like I'm cheating. And, and toilet breaks, by the way, are gone because we don't go to the toilet anymore. Um, and then at 6.30 in the night, I'm throwing myself the couch exhausted. And that's when I have to do my work. This is the daily life for 70% of office workers around the world right now. Now, if my employer is a link, which it is right now, what is holding yourself back from having two links or three links, four links perhaps, meaning you become a freelancer, meaning that you know how to build your personal brand so you can attract traffic, meaning that you learn through the COVID-19 pandemic that actually that sense of camaraderie and sense of belonging you once felt is gone. And by the way, they fired half of the people, so loyalty doesn't exist. Then you as an employer in that company will end up with a pretty bad situation. One says that it costs 10 times more to get a new client than to retain your client. I think it's exactly the same for an employee, that it's 10 times harder to get the right one than actually to retain them. So the money you are saving by cutting the real estate costs, the flights and the hotels and the travels, don't put them on the bottom line, reinvest them into the organization and teach people how to do a what I call an, a defragmentation of your life. A little bit like what you do with a computer when you defragment all the data so it becomes more efficient. Why don't you do that with your daily life? What we did until recently was we worked in a certain way. Okay. Then COVID-19 came on board. We applied all the bad routines and habits we had in the past, and then we put another layer of stuff on top. But we've never done an inventory check, done a defragmentation, and looked at that stuff and said, what makes sense and what doesn't make sense in this whole new environment where I work mainly from home? And what I'm saying here is that try to draw a little graph just for fun. Imagine you have a graph where there is a vertical and a horizontal line as a cross. On the vertical line, you have shouldn't on the top, and on the bottom, you have should. On the horizontal line, you have don't on the left, and you have do on the right. If you take a look at the do and should, that is stuff you're doing today which absolutely makes sense. If you look at the quadrant, which is shouldn't and don't, then you will see that's the space where you really have to reevaluate what you're doing. That's the bad routines, the bad habits you're doing every day. The stuff which is occupying too much time and makes no sense. What I call nonsense, the opposite of common sense. I did that inventory check myself. 45% of my time was in that category. Waste of stuff, waste of time I did. So I converted it, I mapped it down and I converted it into improve. I got rid of it. And through that process, I actually started to understand that my life was going down a one-way track, one-way lane. I think it's the employer's role to help people defragment their life. And instead of creating a to-do list, to create an on-to-do list, to get rid of stuff on your table. And through that, then also train people in empathy, train people in understanding. How do you convey messages for a digital media? How do you become present as a boss? That whole program should be there. Now, if you employ people which have empathy by nature, you are already you know, far down the track because the leader by per se will get it. Maybe he or she is not good at finances. Maybe he or she is not good at marketing, whatever. 
but the person really understands people. And at the end of the day, a good leader is a person which can motivate people and drive people towards a leading goal. It's not a person which can just keep an eye on the bottom line. You have a CFO for that. You have a board for that. So at the end of the day, I would say at any point in time, you always need to have an empathic leader. Now, of course, there's exceptions like the military or whatever it may be. But I think in general, that's probably the rule of thumb. Actually, I'm finding that in the military, they were early to adapt to this, to be much more sensitive to their troops. They treat it as a brotherhood. They're looking after their troops, you know. And so I think there's no exception. As I said before we started recording, that in reading two of your books, including the Ministry of Common Sense, which we're going to talk about now, that I had this instinct, like, there's a million things I want to talk to him about. And you are delivering. So thank you. I mean, you're just extraordinarily thoughtful in your answers. And and obviously, you've done the work before this interview. So I'm just very impressed. And I'm certain my audience is feeling very grateful for your presence here right now. So let's talk about your book a little bit. You define common sense. And I'll, I'll read this. It's actually very clever. As the sum total of our ability to separate right from wrong, efficient from inefficient, useful from pointless valuable from worthless, orderly from sloppy, clean from dirty, dry from soaked, secure from hazardous, mature from childish, beneficial from harmful, and prudent from the ill-advised. I mean, your book is filled with these, but I thought I'm just going to toss this out and say, give us a few of your favorite examples that leaders listening in can relate to where leaders ignored common sense, organizations ignored common sense and made decisions that went on to do a lot of harm. Well, let me just build on the definition of common sense. I see common sense as seeing things as they are and doing things as they ought to be done. I said in another way, to treat consumers and employees as they themselves would expect to be treated. And if you have that in mind, what I think is important is to look for the frictions, the unnecessary frictions which are happening either on the outside in, i.e. from the consumer and customer point of view, or the inside out, which is the employee point of view. Let me just tell you a story, which is uh, very timely. So the other day I was jumping on a plane and I was heading for an exotic destination. And on the plane, there was this announcement going on. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome on board. I regret to inform you that all cabin service has been completely suspended on the entire flight. And by the way, the lavatories in the front of the cabin has been exclusively reserved for the cabin crew only. So here I was, we were 131 passengers now walking down the aisle, almost like lining up to TSA, where I would end up in the end of the plane where I could breathe this mess, freshly brewed smell of toilet with a faint twist of COVID-19. And then as I took my seat, they now have created this whole new entertainment system on board, which I think is fantastic. I never see this before. It's called a contact tracing form. Wonderful device where the first question is, have you been in close proximity with anyone you know within the last 12 hours? And the only thing I had to do was to turn to the right and to ask her for her name and phone number, of course, for the contact tracing form alone, right? And then, by the way, the second question was, which is even more ridiculous, 
you know, we don't have pens on planes anymore because we have our smartphones or whatever it is. So this clever passenger on row one is asking the the cabin crew if he can borrow her pen. And this pen is now walking down the entire <laughs> plane to passenger 131, which is me. And the second question is, da-da, have you tossed anything yeah. anyone else has tossed <laughs> over the last 12 hours? <laughs> so here we are. Common sense is not that common. I mean, this is the issue. It is happening everywhere in our life. And it happens when you start to see the world from inside out, not from outside in. Now, why is this happening? Well, if you go to Australia, we'll notice there's a study conducted which is called Safety Clutter Study. It's a study which analyzed safety rules and regulations implemented across more than 1,000 companies across the Asia-Pacific region. And the study showed, among others, that 65% of all the rules and regulations implemented by companies were only designed for the purpose of promoting the person coming up with the idea. It had no effect whatsoever. This is the issue we have that common sense or the lack of is the fact that the word common disappears and we start to see the world from your point of view. And that one point of view is where you've lost the sense of empathy. And this is the key issue in organizations. So of course, you will say, well, how do we get this back again? And let me give you a quick example from one of our clients, which is one of the largest players in the respiratory field. So these guys came to us and they said, hey, we would like to get closer to the patients. And I said, that's wonderful. When did you talk to the patients the last time? They said, never. I said, never, never, 100 years, never talked to the patients. So we went into patients' homes for the first time ever, and I had some of the key staff from the organization with me. And we ended up in a home of a 28-year-old lady who have had asthma her whole life. And ask her one of these profound questions. How did it feel like to have asthma as a child? And she starts to cry. And she tells me how she was teased in school. She had no friends. It was called a human disgrace for mankind when she was invited to parties. That's me quoting her. So I said to her, listen, you look very confident today. What has changed? And she pulls out her handbag. And out of the handbag, she takes a straw. And she said this thing. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I always give this straw to my friends and new colleagues and ask them to breathe through the straw while holding themselves with the nose. And after 30 seconds, the tubule will spit it out. And then they know how I feel. And then we created empathy. And then we connect. So I took that idea and I shared it with the board. And I had the whole board do exactly the same exercise. We shut down the light, but everyone breathing through the straw and after 30 seconds, guess what? One guy is spitting out the straw. He said, this is ridiculous. You can't live like this. And I said, except one thing. This is how your patients feel mm-hmm. every minute of their entire life. And they're paying your salary. And if you could hear a penny drop on the floor, you would have heard it. And suddenly, they realized where derailed the organization. We created an empathy kit, an onboarding kit as a result. Every new staff had to go through the experience of being an asthma patient. R&D started to live with patients. Marketing started to think as patients and it turned around the organization. I think this is my message that empathy is not about quantity, it's about quality. It's about not what the numbers are saying, but what is said in between the numbers. It's not about a rational 
observation is about a feeling. And that's where we're lost in translation as we turn to the digital devices to get a number from a spreadsheet, believing we're getting closer to what the reality is, because sadly the reality is getting further away from you. It is astonishing, isn't it, that this organization was over 100 years and no one had ever thought to do this before, that they were actually in the healthcare business and that they weren't thinking we should know how people are feeling about their experience. Was that a mind blower to you? Um, no, it wasn't because that is, you just described 90% of all companies in the United States right now. Why is Kellogg struggling to survive? I know they have a little bit of a boom right now because people want to have comfort food during the pandemic, but they were losing typically 5 or 6% in sales every year until the pandemic hit. Why is Campbell struggling? Why is General Mills struggling? Why is Kraft Heinz struggling? Because they completely lost contact with the consumer. Ask them when they last spent time with the consumer. They will either say that my child is eating some of the food, or even worse, as I said in my book, I spoke to one of these executives for one of these big five companies in the CPG category. And I said to her, so this product here, it's a bit unhealthy, right? Have you changed it? She said, God, no, I don't want to change it. No, we earn money on it. I said, would you eat it yourself? No. Would you kill children and eat it? No way. Of course not. I said, so why should the consumer eat it? Well, we earn money. And that's the mindset quite often dominating people because they see the world from inside out. They don't want to go through that fear process. Coming back to my metaphor on chickens, put into a cage, stocked into the cage. It was an experiment. And one day I laid out on the beautiful green grass. And after 30 seconds, they turned around and went straight back into the cage again. I call it the chicken cage syndrome. And this is a chicken cage syndrome most companies suffering from. But they don't know that's what's so ironic because they're constantly spoon-fed with data, fulfilling that gap or that necessity to pretend like we know and we are in contact with the consumer. But in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. It comes back to my experience at the age of 12 when Lego employed me. They didn't do it because I was a clever kid. They did it because they wanted to see the world through the eyes of a child. You're not just advocating that organizations do this with their customers. You're also inherently arguing that you need to do this with your employees. You need to know what their experience is, how they're feeling. And by the way, if I make this decision, how is it going to impact you? What's it going to do to your day? What's it going to do to your spirit? What's it going to do to your long-term engagement and commitment here, right? I mean, this is the common sense that you're also talking about. Well, I do think that if you talk about the undercover boss concept, which, as you know, is also a TV series coming out of UK originally, that's what I recommend a lot of my clients to do, to go undercover and to see and feel how employees at all sorts of levels in the organization are seeing the world. And I think that's the reason why, at the end of the day, we ended up creating the Ministry of Common Sense, which is not just a neat title on a book. It exists. It started up in Standard Charter Bank, one of the 10th largest banks in the world. And we built it up overnight. And it was designed with the sheer purpose of two things. One is to remove fear in the organization for changing or challenging norms by creating a real ministry where people could submit not just complaints or frictions, but also come with a solution to it. We actually were creating a shortcut between friction and change. 
And it has been a tremendous success. It's been run now for three years. It's spread across the world to everything from Merck to Lego to all these companies are using and having a Ministry of Common Sense. Even WD40 have a similar type of setup, not inspired by me, but actually created way before by Gary, who's the CEO. And mm-hmm. He's been on our podcast. Yeah, exactly. And this type of mindset has had a profound impact on giving people hope in an organization when there does no hope. You see, here's the issue. The issue is the reason why people are changing is not because of fear. They're not changing because they tried to change five times before. They had McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group, Ernst & Young, and Bain in trying to produce endless lists of slides and spreadsheets, and nothing of it has helped necessarily in the core of creating a stronger culture. So in the end of the day, what has happened is the people have given up. Oh, no, there's another consultant coming in. No, here we go again, the same movie being played again. So people have fatigue for change. So what you have to do in order to get the chickens out of the cage is to do a trick. You know, if you imagine you have four chicken cages all seen from the top and they're standing around a square and you place a corn to get the chickens out, you should not place the corn in the center of the square. Because what will happen is one chicken will say, gee, that's very far away. My KPIs are not supporting that. What if my manager is being fired? Then I look like a complete fool. So the chicken A will look at chicken B and say, what are you doing? Oh, my gosh, this is far away. I'm not going to do it. I will look at chicken C. Oh, no, forget about it. I'm out. Chicken D, oh, three people out. I'm, I'm not in there either. So suddenly you won't have a chance. So where do you place the corn? Straight in front of the chicken cage. And as you do that, what happens is that you can do what I call a 90-day intervention, a short, impactful, little change, removing a friction, and in return, create amazing success. Then you celebrate the success. You celebrate the hell out of it within the organization. It gives people a comfort blanket, which they can lean up against as another change is implemented, another little piece of corn is placed, and slowly you transform the organization from one mindset to another. That is where most companies are breaking down. They place the corn in the center. We have a five-year strategy, everyone. And then people start and it's watered down, watered down, watered down. And it ends up as a shadow of its own right. And the end of the day, it just fades away and ends up as a PowerPoint. Define corn for us, Martin, just to pin it down. A corn for me is a goal for a change. Let me give you an example. So if I take another bank we work for, I had this very big workshop going on with 800 executives from this bank in New York City. And I asked them, you look very frustrated, all of you guys. Why are you so frustrated? And they really were frustrated. They said, I hate being in banking. And one guy raised his hand and said, I receive 800 emails every day. I'm sick and tired of it. Think about it, 800 emails, one minute per email. That's 13 hours, okay? There's no way you can do your work. So said, are you aware of there's a direct correlation between the number of emails you send and the number of emails you receive? So I said to them, why don't we get rid of the CC button? Why don't we get rid of the reply all button? Oh, no, we can't do it. Compliance, we're up in the air. There's no way we can do it. What if people, no, we will be sued. People are not being informed. I said, how many of you in this room, 800 people, how many of you have ever read the CC no, messages over the last week? Not a single person raised their hand. I said, so why don't we do the test for 90 days? We work with Microsoft. We remove the CC button and the reply all button. It's not in Outlook anymore in that company. 
after 90 days, the number of emails had dropped from an average of 800 and something to 362 emails. That's a correct number, the exact number. And not a single complaint was received. That is a piece of con. That's genius. And has this organization sustained it? Yes, they have. Is there now a global policy? And was that the only source of frustration for these people? Because you seem to be reading the room. Were there other issues that you had to fix for them too? That was, that was 500, I'm sure. But that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. If you fix one thing, it gives hope for me to place another piece of corn. The other corn, by the way, was PowerPoint presentations. Let me set that up, Martin. You advocate for not using PowerPoints. And so I want to talk about meetings because this is sort of a practical thing that you talked about in the book that I really agree with you on. But you also suggest that we not use PowerPoints. But there were several times in the book where you're mentioning that you're about to go into a meeting where you're putting a presentation together and it's a PowerPoint. So I thought, well, I I need to ask him this. So let me set this up and just say that you think we just spend way too much time in meetings and there's no argument in the world, particularly now that we're all working from home. It feels like it's just nonstop Zoom meetings. And you say that most meetings suck and that we'd all be smart to limit them to 30 minutes. So start to finish 30 minutes. And you think that there are other ways that we need to really improve the way we run meetings, including stop with all the PowerPoints. So pin that down for us. Well, I think increasingly it's become sort of the idea of how big is your dick phenomenon, as I write in the book, where quantity equals commitment or equals productivity. I mean, a recent study from one of the big five revealed that productivity has never been higher because of COVID-19. Maybe the productivity is higher when it comes to the number of calls you're on, but no one asked the question about how has creativity grown during COVID-19. I'm pretty sure you'll see it's in an existential crisis right now. So how do you measure productivity? I think a lot of people today are measuring it a little bit like the number of meetings you're attending, the number of PowerPoint decks you can produce, or Excel spreadsheets. It's a little bit like the happiness index. The happiness index is measured based on how many television sets you have and how many cars you have and houses and whatever. And I can say this with pretty strong certainty. I mean, I'm Danish, I'm from Denmark. I'm half Swedish, that's Sweden. I live in Switzerland and I've spent a lot of time in Finland. That happens to be the four happiest countries in the world, Mm -hmm. according to the study came out last week. I can tell you it's BS. It's not true. If you want to find happy people, go to Thailand go to other countries where they don't have two and a half computers per person and three villas and two cars. So we measure things the wrong way. And so we need to reevaluate the way we measure productivity. Productivity for me is not PowerPoint decks. It is the ability to create and make decisions, create new thoughts and create decisions and make decisions. It is to be able to constantly see the world from the consumer's point of view, and adopt to that view in a nimble and fast way. That is, for me, productivity. 
is not to create bureaucracy, which, by the way, is around 45% of the time, an average person in a Fortune 1000 company is spending per day due to red tape and bureaucracy and rules and regulations. So what I'm saying here is that the PowerPoint presentation has become kind of an excuse for sort of a piece of evidence for hours productive. Mm-hmm. So I'm going the black and white version. I'm saying, well, let's get rid of it. And that's what we did for Maersk. Maersk is the largest shipping company in the world. They sit on 21% of all trade. And we got rid of the PowerPoint deck altogether. I haven't received a single complaint. It's not there anymore. I mean, we're talking about 88,000 staff which can't express them through PowerPoint decks. And by the way, if you think that's pretty revolutionary, just go to Amazon. Amazon do not use PowerPoint at all. They write essays as a reflection of their meetings. And they present them prior to the meeting, so everybody they has do. Them, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think, long story short, of course I'm black and white in what I'm saying. You can have one, two, three pages. I'm using PowerPoint presentation myself when I'm doing keynote speeches. But I always and constantly ask myself, are they adding value? Am I showing them just for the sake of showing it? Or is it really something which can help strengthen my verbal voice? And if I can do it through visualization, fine. But I'm not doing it because I want to tick a box. I want to dig into the happiness, how you would design the happiness, because it seems like, and this is a little bit off topic, but because you brought it up, and I think it's so fascinating that we're looking at all these countries where you're spending all your time and thinking that they've created this, you know, nirvana, when in fact, we're asking the wrong questions. So how would you measure eudaimonic happiness? How would you recreate the happiness survey? to truly define where people are really fundamentally happy? Well, first of all, I don't think there is the golden answer to that excellent question. I think a lot of people have tried through the years to find the formula, but I think there's a good way you can start it. And I think one way you can find out how happy people are is to ask, how many days do you remember of the last year? How many days do you remember for the last year? And you would probably only remember two sets of days. You remember the good ones and the really bad ones. Then look at those two things and find out what the balance is. And probably that's a good way to start figuring out how happy you are. So you did have an answer. That's brilliant and so simple, which is really your message. Martin, I'd like to take a quick break from our discussion and transition into a podcast tradition we call the Heartbeat Round. And to give us just a little more personal insight into the biggest influences in your life, I'm going to ask you a few more personal questions, but these all require a quick, instinctive, and brief answer. In other words, answer them in a heartbeat. Are you ready? Sure. Lesson about life you learned from playing with Legos as a kid. To stay as a child on the inside and never lose that. A major brand that routinely and repeatedly excels with their advertising. No one. Humor, fear, or love? What emotional approach to marketing works best in driving long-term customer behavior? Sadly, fear, um, but I prefer the humor part. A cultural value every organization should have? Empathy. Quality that derails most leadership careers? Um, Obsession for yourself. A ritual you follow every day without fail? Swimming. One book you believe everyone listening in should read one day? I don't read books. You listen to books? No, I never read a book in my life, a business book. No, I don't want to. It doesn't have to be a business book. A book. No, no. Even yours? 
Uh, well, that's not it's not fair to say you own books. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sorry, no, but I don't read books, and it's not because I'm arrogant. It's simply because I'm so afraid of stealing ideas from others. So I I don't read books. I spend time with with people. That's my reading. The quality you most admire in other people to be present. Prediction about the future: you're pretty certain is going to come true. Uh, we will, by the end of COVID nineteen, uh, see a split in the population. We'll have one part of the population running out, being active in theaters, in at festivals, concerts, and we'll live almost like this is the last day of the life. And we'll have another part of the population stocked at home, not daring to leave, and will become increasingly depressed. We will see a fascinating yet scary outcome of the result of COVID-19. Just like we saw in the depression. Wow, fascinating. Your synonym for the word heart um, it probably would be universal. A newspaper or a magazine you never miss reading? A New York Times. One lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life? Very simple. That nine out of ten of all the concerns you have are unnecessary. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life? Leave home, be poor, and feel what other people are feeling. Well, no surprise. These are extremely thoughtful answers. Thank you so very much for going through the heartbeat round with me, Martin. You're welcome. We're going to have to have you back, Martin, because you just have such a fountain of insight that I find fascinating. And I'm certain my audience does in the interest of time, unfortunately, before I wind things down. One thing you're calling for one of my big takeaways from your book is that you really want people to be more courageous. You want leaders to be more courageous. And to identify and make small changes, this is your chicken example, that will ultimately yield big and very positive results. So before you go, tell us where we should look first. Like, where could we put your common sense to work, all of us? I think it's very simple. I think the first thing you have to do is to ask yourself, you know, what stuff are you doing on a daily basis, which is deeply frustrating? And by the way, am I the only one or is the case that a lot of other people are equally frustrated? And then address it by a 90-day intervention and go through the process I'm outlining in the book. It's a very simple process, but at least I think that process can help you to break down frustrations. When you get rid of frustration, what happens as well is that it's like you get oxygen and oxygen gives you permission to do more. You want more. And that's where you can start to do the real changes. So start small and build up the momentum. Awesome. Martin Lindstrom, you are one bright guy, but you're more than bright. You're extremely thoughtful. Oh, thank you. And that's what stands out. And by being so thoughtful, it leads you to conclusions that most of us probably would never come to. So on behalf of my audience, thank you so very, very much for joining us. It's been just a delight. You are welcome. It was a pleasure to be on your show. Before we go, I happened to see American comedian Dana Carvey interviewed recently, and he just launched his own new podcast. I mentioned it because he kiddingly said that he waited until there were two million podcasts before starting his. And the joke, of course, is that there are now so many podcasts out there, which is why we so appreciate you listening in and recommending us to your friends. We now have an audience in 153 countries, which may be the most encouraging piece of data on our podcast that we have. And I want to thank my remote team, including Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Randy Yant, Carrie Finnessy, and Eric Oz for everything they do to help produce this podcast. 
And I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Thank you.